Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Well, everybody knows about the A team. At the Revere, the host A team is Danny. I'm the B team today. He's uh, he's actually in Florida, taking in uh, his daughter before she starts college. Wanted to uh, check out Florida one more time, so uh, we gave Danny the day off. How kind was that of us, uh, Zach? Very big. Zach, house. our man on the street. Yes, happy to be here. All right, glad to have you. So today's podcast is going to be pretty focused on the markets, charts, and uh, interest rates. Uh, the dollar and what's going on with uh, seasonality and some breadth issues and sentiment. And we are going to get right into it. And I'm going to show three charts to kick off. And the one you're looking at right now is the S&P 500. And I've got a, let me blow this up just a tiny bit. I've got uh, an arrow pointing here toward what I've been calling in the nightly videos, a shot across the bow. This happened last Thursday, so seven trading sessions ago. We had a new high and then a big negative reversal. The next two days uh, acted like that big negative reversal didn't even happen. Then we had a consolidation day. But then after that third day, we had uh, the Fitch downgraded the U.S. uh, credit rating. And if you read what Fitch said, you really can't argue with it. It's really about how our budget process is broken. There is polarization, blah, blah, blah. We have a bunch of unfunded liabilities that nobody's discussing. And they're right about all that. Of course, the, the ratings agencies have no credibility either after what they did uh, by marking all those mortgage bonds as AAA back in the financial crisis when those were really uh, belonged in a flaming dumpster. And we all know how that turned out. So you've got two dysfunctional agencies fighting with each other. How's that going to end, Zach? Uh, Not well, Don. I don't think that'll end well for anybody. Well, it hasn't been well for the market the last three days. Now, this the, we've been in a very nice uptrend. If you've been listening to, to the nightly videos, you're well aware of that, and we've been taking advantage of that. But uh, this green line on here, the 21-day moving average, this the entire uh, positive trend that we've seen over the last two and a half months took place above that green line. Yesterday, uh, two days ago, Wednesday, we closed right on it. Yesterday, we broke below it. Today, we're rallying a bit and trying to get 
back above it, but this is a very critical level. It's about the 4510 level on the S&P 500 right now. We're 15 points uh, above that. That could, you know, if we just started this podcast uh, an hour ago, we were below it. So uh, quite a bit of volatility there on the S&P 500. Let's look at the NASDAQ 100. This has been getting uh, it's been lagging on a relative strength basis. This is the the big seven tech stocks. And last night, uh, Apple reported and uh, not so well received down 3%. However, Amazon picked up the slack by knocking the cover off the ball and they're up uh, 11% on their earnings report. So we had two closes below that key 21 level on the NASDAQ 100. That key level right now is around 375.80. We're trading at 377 right now, so trying to get back above and stay back above there. And this this divide this is really our dividing line between a short-term uh, caution and a short-term uptrend. And we're kind of playing ping pong above that level over the last three sessions. So we'll see how we close the week. Will the bulls win? Will the bears win? Uh, we don't predict. We just uh, see what what action the market is taking, and we react we, uh, we react accordingly. We've had a lot of leading stocks take it on the chin. It's been a very interesting earnings uh, period, and uh, some really getting hit hard. Others uh, really taken off to the upside. So it's always a mixed bag with earnings. We uh, measure our risk for anything that we have going into earnings, but. Um, but for right now, part of the focus is the dollar. So I showed the, the NASDAQ 100, I showed uh, the S&P 500, and the dollar is uh, very critical. A strong dollar is not good for the market. So this dollar going higher over the last three weeks corresponds with a little bit of weakening in the market. But you can see the dollar down today. We had a jobs report before the opening. Uh, it was weaker than expected, and the prior two months were revised downward. That, uh, ironically, is a good sign for the overall market because it means the Fed isn't doesn't have pressure to keep interest rates higher for longer. And uh, the dollar coming off, and let's go to uh, interest rates. This is the 30-year bond, TYX. And it had taken off, it had had three big moves up over the prior three days. And this corresponded with uh, that uh, credit rating move by Fitch. So we broke out uh, and higher interest rates are not good for growth stocks. Uh, but with the weak jobs report today, you can see interest rates taking a little bit of a break. With the interest rates taking a break today, we can see uh, as I showed before, that the S&P 500 is trying to regain this key level. So there's a very uh, big correlation between what's going on with the dollar and interest rates and what's going on with the market over the past three sessions. So we're paying uh, closer attention to that. We always want the wind to be at our back and not uh, in our face. We've lightened up some positions uh, as we've locked in gains and had some stops taken out. But uh, for now, all it is is a short-term caution, short-term correction, longer term, the market trending above the 50-day moving average, that's our intermediate term, <clears throat> excuse me, trend line above the 200-day moving average, that's our long-term trend line. Uh, recall we spent the majority of last year below that black line, the 200-day moving average, and that's the dividing line uh, 
a healthy market and a risky market. And once we got back above that level and started trending higher uh, back in the middle of March, 329 was the, the key day. That's when we had what's called a follow through day. And it's kind of a signal uh, to re-enter the market based on William O'Neill principles, which we're big uh, proponents of. So uh, since then, you can see the market trending higher. <clears throat> This is the first pullback during that period that tested the 21-day moving average. We'll see where we are by the end of the day and the end of the week. Uh, but as far as whether or not we should have, we, we let the health of stocks and uh, of the indices dictate uh, how we approach the markets. If you watch the videos, uh, you're familiar with, let me bring in the uh, everybody's best friend, the trend gauge. So every night uh, we show this on videos, it dictates how market leaders are acting and then how the five major indexes are acting relative to their short term. 21 day exponential moving average, their medium term 50 day moving average and their long term 200 day moving average. And depending on how these arrows are configured and whether or not they're under pressure or threatening to go more towards neutral, that dictates how much money uh, we have in the market. So uh, between the trend gauge and also uh, the tail of the tape, uh, every night we discuss something called our portfolio uh, volatility adjusted beta. Uh, and for comparison, uh, the S&P 500 has a 1.0 volatility adjusted beta. That's, that's the baseline that every ETF, uh, every stock that we own is compared to. And what we're trying to do is determine the exposure and the overall volatility of the portfolio. So. We got a mailbag uh, request come in from a client and um, I'm gonna paraphrase that. I don't have it right here in front of me. I said, uh, well, wait a minute, Dan did send it to me. Hold on one second. Love the mailbag. The mailbag, you gotta love the mailbag. Love the mailbag. So uh, TS wrote in and said, I may have missed the reasoning, but I'm curious as to why in a bull market we are only 53% invested in this time. Thanks. So uh, Dan replied back, thanks for reaching out. Whenever you have a question, you can email me directly. The beta, the adjusted beta of the portfolio is different from the cash balance. You actually have a beta over one relative to the S&P 500. Those are the, the numbers that I just showed. Uh, I think when this uh, came in, we were at about a 1.7. Dan says you have a 32% position size in SSO, which is two times the S&P. Therefore, you have to add 32% more equity, bringing down your exposure to 21 or your cash to 21%. Then our stocks have a higher beta than a one. So that would bring it down as well. We also keep 10 to 15% cash, even in good markets for opportunities or hedging. In a bad market, the cash level would be significantly higher. So cash percentage and the risk of the overall portfolio are related, but they're two different measurements. This is especially true when using leveraged ETFs in order to keep cash available for other investments. So I'm going to uh, bring in this chart and explain uh, what Danny was saying in that email. So this chart has three levels or, or three sections to it. The first section 
deals with the S&P 500 and how risky is the S&P 500. I'm sorry, how volatile is the S&P 500? We know the S&P 500 always has a beta of one and the volatility factor that we assign to it is one. And that's because this is the baseline uh, of, of the market. All And beta is a uh, often quoted uh, risk and our volatility or correlation to the S&P 500 of every instrument. If it has a beta of over one, it's, it is expected to be to move higher over the long term than what the S&P would do or lower uh, or lower if its beta is more than a one. So in other words, if the, the beta is one and the S&P was up a percent and your beta was 1.5, you would expect on that day or over the average that the return for that instrument be a 1.5. Uh, so right now we track the overall average true range. That's what is the high to the low of the S&P 500 on uh, a particular day. And we look back over the prior uh, six weeks trading sessions. And right now, the uh, average true range of the S&P 500 is basically 0.8, so less than a percent. It was over three times this back during uh, the bear market of last year. So the market on a daily basis was three times more volatile than it is right now. So move over to the middle section uh, of this chart. And this is where we calculate what we call the revere volatility factor for everything that we own. So the first, we need uh, three pieces of data for this. We need the beta of the overall instrument that we're looking at. Let's use NVIDIA for an example. NVIDIA has a 2.1 beta. So it's 2.1 times, if the S&P was up a percent, you would expect NVIDIA to be up 2.1%. If it was down a percent, NVIDIA should be down 2.1% the price of NVIDIA, and then the average true range or how NVIDIA moves from high to low on a daily basis is currently 14.4%. So you divide that by the price and that gives you a daily average true range of 3.16%. So let's compare the ATR of the S&P 500 at 0.79%, the volatility of, or the average true range of the S&P 500, 0.79%, okay, so basically eight tenths of a percent. Compare that to NVIDIA, it's 3.16%. So that's over four times we take the, the volatility of uh, the, or the ATR of NVIDIA, and we divide it by the volatility of the S&P. So on a daily basis, uh, NVIDIA will move four times high to low as volatile as the S&P 500 will. And then we use 75% of that calculation and 25% of the beta to calculate what we call the revere volatility factor. So NVIDIA gets a score of 3.53. We sum all the scores of everything that we own, and this brings you to the third part of this uh, calculation. Uh, and it's called our overall portfolio volatility adjusted beta. So basically what we're doing is we're taking the position size that we have in everything that we have, add the calculations up, and we come up with uh, a, a number that tells us how volatile the overall portfolio is. And in this example, it's at 1.26. So 26% more volatile than uh, the S&P 500. So the expectation, 
is if the S&P was up 1% on the day, that our portfolio should be up 1.26%. If the S&P was down 1% on the day, our portfolio should be down 1.26%. Below there, we have a cash calculation. So at this point, we've got 10% in T-bills. That leaves us 90% to invest. And uh, we've got a total of... Uh, 28.8% cash. So in other words, of that 90%, we've got 62% in the market. So you add the cash level of what we have available to invest. You add the cash level of the T-bills. Right now, we're the equivalent of 38.8% in cash. So it seems like we've got a, if you just look at a pure cash basis, seems like we have a lot uh, of cash and we don't have that much in the market, but actually we have more volatility than the market currently has when you factor in the volatility of the overall holdings. Now, I hope that wasn't too complicated. Uh, let me sum it up in a couple of sentences. First of all, we take a look at the volatility of the S&P and that's assigned to one. We take a look at the volatility in the beta of every position that we own and assign it a score and that score is on a relative basis versus the S&P 500 from a beta and volatility standpoint. We sum up those scores and that gives us the current volatility of the overall portfolio. And this gives us a benchmark with the S&P being at 1.0, the volatility of the portfolio in this case 1.26, so 26.1% more volatile than the S&P. Uh, despite the fact that our uh, cash that we have available is 39%. So we're basically 61% uh, in the market. Zach, does that make sense to the man on the street? I think I was able to keep up. The points at the end were particularly helpful. I appreciate the summary. Good, 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 good. So um, I think that answers the mailbag question, and I think we're going to... Uh, dive into the market and then our segments now with the fellas. So okay. let's start off. Actually, I think I pretty much uh, covered the market and what we're looking at uh, with the S&P 500, the dollar and uh, interest rates. So let's uh, segue into uh, what the fellas are going to talk about uh, this week. And we're going to start off with Ted. Teddy 10 charts. Take it away. Yep. Take so this, this breadth data was taken as of yesterday's close, just to, just to let you guys know. Um, so the markets are currently in the middle of a pullback. Uh, to, the, to what extent is, all, is always uncertain, but I'm just, I'm just going to present some breadth data once again. Um, so here is the S&P 500 weekly chart, the advanced decline line of the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are pulling back as expected along with the general market. Uh, the next one is the NASDAQ weekly chart as well as its corresponding advanced decline line. This one, like, it, like this one, again, it's it, it could barely hook up from its bottom. So there's still a lot of room for improvement here. Um, that's definitely a negative divergence. As you can see, the price of the NASDAQ blew by its February highs, but this one's still yet to make those highs, get over those highs. Um, the following two charts is the NISI and ASI, the McCle McClellan summation. And, oh, sorry, 
the net highs, my bad. Um, the Nizzy, as of yesterday's close, did not make net low territory, which is definitely a good sign. We're not seeing new lows, which is, which is a positive, even though we're pulling back. The next one is the NASDAQ net high and low chart. This one dipped back into net low territory. However, if you look from left to right, net lows are contracting um, and then net highs are ex expanding on balance. So now we wanna see these to be contained within this range, find some stabilization in the markets and then see net highs once again. The next two charts, this one is the Nizzy McClellan summation index. We hooked lower and below the 10 day moving average. So that is usually an indication to, it's like a yellow light in a way, so. And then the next chart after this one is the NASI and it's the same signal. It hooked down as well um, below the 10 day moving average and the parabolic SAR. So it's just another indicator to tell us to maybe slow down, step back, reevaluate, and then look for new setups. The following two charts are the percentage of stocks above the, above the 50 day moving average, 150 day moving average and 200 day moving average. And also, as expected, if we're pulling back, the numbers will come down as well. Two weeks ago, I noted that the, 50, the percentage of stocks above the 50-day moving average was getting near frothy levels. As, as you can see, there's a bunch of peaks at the very top, um, and rightly so. We, we're pulling back now as well as the percentage of stocks above the 50-day moving average. However, these numbers are still very healthy, so we just have to wait, out, wait it out and see, see, how, see what the market gives us. Like I said, um, here's another negative divergence with the NASDAQ. The percentage of stocks above the 200-day wasn't able to make a higher high above that February level, even though price did and is well above it. And so that just, that just kind of indicates that breath is still not where we want it to be, and we're getting a pullback now. So if we find, if we find, if we find support here and then see that percentage of stocks above the 200-day blow by the February highs, that would be a very good sign. Finally, um, I have two, two sentiment charts. The first one is a CNN Fear and Greed Index. We're definitely coming off those highs from extreme greed and dipped back into the greedy territory, which is good to see um, sentiment light up a little bit. And then finally, the, the last chart is the AAII. And in the previous weeks, I've talked about how we've been We've been pegged at this frothy level, and it seems like we're finally lightening up a little bit in terms of sentiment on the bullish side, as well as price in the markets correcting below the 21 EMA currently. All right. So once again, uh, sentiment as a contrary indicator seems to have worked out here. Thanks, Ted. Teddy 10 charts from Teddy 10 charts. We'll go to Connor, who's got uh, three charts uh for us to look at today take it away connor yeah so i think um it was a good time to talk about seasonality today on the show and just how it's something we look at but it, but it's clearly not something that you know means that much you you take it with a grain of salt because there's always that saying sell in may and go away and you know the markets the market didn't care about that but Historically speaking, it's something that's good to keep an eye out and it's something we're always well aware of. So right here is a chart, uh, Carson's research put it out and it basically shows the week performance in August and September for the S&P index. So historically going back to 1950, August has been slightly green and then September has been, been very weak. 
But as you look, if, if you can weather that storm, look at October, November, December. So, and we're already kind of seeing it. August has already been somewhat off to a weak start. We're pulling back. We broke the 21 EMA and whatnot. So you could argue already seeing some weak seasonality come into play in the markets. Um, so yeah, this, this graphic does a good job of showing the strength of each month's good visual. Good. You know, it really, as you mentioned, Connor, the sell in May and go away isn't necessarily, uh, I mean, you miss the typical gains that happen in mid-June and all in July. So how about if we say this, how about sell in May and go away, come back in June to stay in tune, sell in July or your profits go bye-bye? Whoa, whoa. That's a catch uh -huh. on, do you think? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Don's the best I'm, with those. I'm a poet, yeah, and I didn't it. even know it. Oh, Let's yeah. see Dan come up with a rhyme like that. I know he's the A team, but do you think he can beat that, Zach? <laughs> no. All right, let's go through that. that one more time. Sell in May and go away. Come back in June to stay in tune. Sell in July or your profits go goodbye. Wow. Not bad. I'm leaving them speechless. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. Somebody write that down. Next, next chart, Connor. <laughs> and yeah, so this is, go. yeah, so this is the Russell. So pretty much the same thing. This is just a different, uh, different graphic of, to look at the seasonality. So like you said, we exactly what the market saw a strong run up in July and we're pulling back into the start of August. Seasonality shows that, you know, you pull back in the first week of August and then you kind of consolidate. So you could use this as a guide, uh, find those sh uh, short-term lows and see if the market can hold those. And as you can see in this, um, into the end of August, the market ramps up and then into September see sees a huge push before a brief pullback in October and then October through December. Has historically been yeah. pretty strong. So, yeah, that's interesting. So, quite a divergence in September uh, versus what they can what, versus the S and P five hundred. So, really, uh, you've got a big divergence in small caps versus large caps, especially in September. Uh, August, it seems to be unanimous to just uh, uh, tread lightly. So, uh, I guess those are the dog days of summer that they like to talk about uh, in the market. All right, last yeah. chart here. So this and yes, this this is the S and P again. Um, pretty similar, like that first graphic I showed. And what you can gauge from this is that you know market might pull back, but into into November, December, the markets historically are pretty strong. So something to keep an eye on. And looking back at June, July, um, the markets have been very strong. So they have been following the yeah, seasonality. Wow. And, and what's what's interesting about this chart is, and, and this goes with the Russell too, so I really, I guess I want to take back what I said about small caps versus large caps, because you can see how different the middle of September is versus the beginning and the end. The last couple of weeks in September uh, are really the time, uh, is really the time to avoid, but you, you, that first chart that you showed is just the gross monthly returns. So it doesn't show that big spike up in the middle of September before the last couple of weeks 
into the end of the quarter is a sell-off. So, you know, if you're a little bit more nimble uh, from a seasonality standpoint, uh, August, it seems to be unanimous. Uh, you know, it's tough, but September, you've got that big spike before the sell-off, which leaves you lower than you were at the beginning uh, of September. And of course, remember, this is an average. This doesn't, uh, this is an average over decades. This doesn't necessarily mean this is how things have to go. Uh, although it's it's kind of been pretty uh, spot on this year from a seasonality standpoint with the March rally uh, and then the July rally. All right, Connor, anything else to add? Nope, that's it for today. All right. Now for the guy who puts the fun in fundamentals, our very <laughs> own Michael Ramos. What do you got for us this okay. week, Mike? Yeah, so I, I got a couple of things, but I wanted to start off with uh, something interesting I saw in the uh, Wall Street Journal this morning. And um, something I've been thinking about for, for a little while, too, is that um, there, there's an article uh, about Bud Light and um, how the boycott is eating into Anheuser-Busch's uh, share of the beer market. And something I've been thinking about is is uh, a lot of these companies, uh, like you've seen it with Target, uh, you've seen it with Bud Light, it, it, it's this this um, virtue signaling. And they they seem to take it upon themselves to, to kind of dictate what the public should be interested in and focused on and what they should believe and you know without without getting political about it i mean anyone can have whatever views they want everyone's entitled to their own opinions but i was thinking a, an analogy that that makes a lot of sense and i also agree wouldn't be acceptable is if let, let's imagine if uh if ford in the new f-150s on the dashboard they had a, a big cross on every single truck and released it. The, the public would be outraged. They'd say, why are you putting your religious views and, and, and selling them in cars? Like, you can believe whatever you want, but we don't have to see it every day. Let us believe whatever. And it's kind of the same thing that Target and Bud Light and all these companies are doing. Why should, in a store, why should Target uh, be, be selling merchandise and having... Uh, certain certain pride flags and and certain things around their stores. Like for example, I remember in school you weren't you weren't allowed to say like during the holidays you weren't allowed to say Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah. You couldn't get religion involved at all. So why is it okay now in schools to to promote certain things for for little kids and talk about um, sexuality and and um, sexual preferences so i just think it's a double standard and and as we can see now these companies are, are taking a hit and it's it's kind of backfiring on them because it's as i said it everyone's entitled to their own opinions and beliefs but it it, it it's a line that you shouldn't cross to to project that on other people and and the public is kind of getting fed up and it's nothing to do with um homophobia or or anti-religious views. It's just like, let me do my own thing. That's the point of living in a democracy. You're kind of allowed to live however you want. So I think um, that's kind of where it's coming from. And and I don't agree with, with a lot of the positions that these companies are taking. And um, like in, in the article, they even say, uh, people just want Bud Light to stick to selling beer 
and people want to enjoy their beer without a debate. And I completely agree with that because that's why you're drinking a beer to just have a good time with friends. It doesn't need to be a, a virtue signal. It doesn't need to be this debate. So um, I just saw that article and wanted to share some thoughts on it and um, be interested what our viewers believe if, if they agree, or maybe, maybe I said something that, that people don't agree with. Um, so I'm totally happy to hear other perspectives and thoughts on this. And then um, something else I wanted to get into uh, more now focused on, on, I guess the, the market specifically is, is um, sort of the kind of analysis I do. And in terms of fundamentals, what, what attributes you want to look for in a company and, and what, um, what the best businesses possess. And there's a few key characteristics and um, I'll, I'll list through them and then give an example of a company that, that fits, that, that checks uh, pretty much all the boxes. And the first is strong barriers to entry. Then you want to have limited capital requirements, organic growth, repeat customers, significant pricing power, which has to do, which go, goes along with that strong barriers to entry, high margins, low risk of technological obsolescence, competitive moats, also tied into that strong barriers to entry, and strong sustained and increasing cash flows. So a company that, that I've recognized, and I'm not the first one to do this because a lot of people have recognized it, that's why it's been such a strong performer, is Domino's Pizza. And Domino's, um, the best investments are usually the most obvious ones. And Domino's Pizza is a franchise business model. And because of that, it produces some of the highest levels of return on capital, which goes to that um, high margins and limited capital requirements, and also uh, the strong and sustained and increasing cash flows. So if you think about the business model, most of the capital for a franchise is provided by the franchisee. So the franchisor gets a royalty from the revenues generated by other people's capital, which is an amazing business model. And unlike other fast food restaurants, and this is something really, really special and something I hadn't appreciated until I started digging into it. Um, unlike other fast food restaurants, Domino's focuses solely on the food, but the best part is that they're predominantly a delivery business. And what that means is that they can operate from cheaper locations, therefore cutting the capital required to operate compared to other fast food restaurants and operators that are competing for the best locations and therefore have higher costs. And this partnership with Uber, before they released earnings, they gapped up on that partnership with Uber. And then after earnings, they continued and held that move. But part of what makes Domino's so special is that they can set up shop in a, in a very, very cheap location because the majority, the vast majority of their business is delivery. So it's not, it's not that important for them to have a great customer experience at the location. And um, in the future with more automation and delivery and this partnership with Uber, they can set up in even cheaper locations and cut down on, on staffing costs and just have robots basically making pizzas because it's not that hard to make a pizza. So in terms of uh, strong barriers to entry, they've been around since 1960. Um, it's very difficult to, to set up a franchise at the scale um, that Domino's has 
there's a few competitors, but I mean, they've been, they've, they've kind of got a lock on the pizza market. Um, as I spoke about limited capital requirements, a lot less capital because of the franchise model and because of their um, reduced spending on, on locations versus other fast food restaurants. Organic growth, um, people love pizza. They keep eating more pizza. They don't have to do a lot of um, acquisitions. I mean, it's, it's basically the same, the same brand expanding to more locations. Uh, repeat customers significant pricing power they can i mean it, it's it's difficult they can't increase prices too much but they do have the ability to increase prices if they need to to um to cut down on on costs um high margins they've got if you look at their return on capital they've got some of the best return on capital in in the game and um if you look at return on equity which market market smith shows that can be a little misleading. This is why you need to dig into the, the companies a little further because in terms of re return on equity, it's even better. They've got a, like some of the most incredible return on equity, but that's because they're, they're a pretty highly levered business model, which means that they have a lot of debt and they actually use that debt wisely because they're able to secure financing and, and this long-term debt at really, really low rates. And then they use that to actually pay a dividend to reinvest in the business. So debt for a company like Domino's is a concern if they're not able to pay it off. But if you look at their free cash flow, they generate more than enough free cash flow to, to pay off that debt. So it doesn't seem to be an issue at the moment. And um, and then and then yeah, um, low risk of technolo technological obsolescence. Um, it, yeah, they're, they're not at risk of uh, some new tech company company coming and, and taking their market share. Um, there's no new iPhone or product that's going to put them out of business like BlackBerry. And technology, as it progresses, uh, will, will actually benefit them. So that's the kind of thing you want to see in a, a really strong, sustainable company. And as you can see in this monthly chart, I mean, they've, they've, uh, <laughs> they've, they've been one of the strongest performers in the market over... over um, over a decade so yeah they absolutely uh nailed the mobile experience with their app they were light years ahead of similar uh of, of their competitors that pete the pizza maker uh app uh, when i order Domino's, it's just amazing it's so simple to go through uh, it's got every base covered, and uh, what an amazing move the stock made after uh, the financial crisis, basically going from uh, 10 bucks a share to 600. Uh, gave back a, a good bit of that last year during uh, the, the bear market, and also them, the pullback coincided with the rise in uh, the delivery services like Uber Eats, because, you know, before, if you wanted to get food ordered, you had to stick with the delivery companies. Well, all of a sudden, Uber Eats would pick up anywhere uh, and uh, DoorDash and companies like that pick up anywhere and bring the food to you. And then Domino said, hey, if you can't beat them, join them and made a um, partnership with Uber Eats. Was it Uber Eats that they made the partnership with, right? Yeah. Mike? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so a great, uh, great response to their most uh, recent uh earnings report on the back of that partnership that they had. So uh, definitely an example of uh, forward thinking. They were ahead of their time with that uh, delivery app. 
I believe, Zach, that that is going uh, to wrap it for the day. Uh, Zach, any questions or takeaways from anything you've heard the fellas say? As our man on the street, we uh, certainly want to know what uh, what Main Street thinks about what we're putting out there. Uh, you know, I, I do have one question. It may be irrelevant. I'm not sure if we covered it. Uh, but before the show, I had asked the fellas uh, if they had any thoughts on what should go in the thumbnail this week. Uh, and, and Mike mentioned uh, Tim Cook. And did we cut? Was Apple mentioned in there? Because I was curious what they got going on. I don't know, an iPhone? Think about uh, upgrading. You know, yeah. I take a look at the Apple charts. I, I um, don't know if I mentioned this or not. I know we've talked about it uh, extensively, but this is the first time Apple's taken a break after their earnings uh, report g gapping below this 50 day moving average. That's the red line. So they're kind of. Uh, uh, taking a little bit of a break from a relative strength standpoint and a price standpoint uh, on the market as their uh, earnings report was nowhere near as well received as Amazon's was. You can see Amazon gapping up uh, to new highs on there. Is it new highs? Let's take a look at a weekly chart. No, not anywhere near new highs, actually. So Amazon's yeah, got room to run. In fact, it's new 52 week highs right but uh coming into a resistance area from when they were hit hitting on all strides going back into uh the 2020s but um basically from what i've read great earnings report by amazon apple uh you know not so much but they they do they're getting ready to have the new iphone coming out the i they got to get rid of their lightning charger and replace it with usb-c because of Europe demanding uh, all devices have a uh, common charging component. So that's that's going to be pretty simple. Their, their lightning charger was one of the things that set them apart from the Android phones. But uh, Eurozone said not so fast. So I'd be curious, always curious to see uh, how the big seven is acting as there's such a big weighting in the market that we always got to be aware of what they're doing but for the thumbnail uh zach if i mentioned this to danny if you can find a bull on a surfboard that's really <laughs> the way we play the market is bull on uh, a surfboard. all right yeah, yeah, I'll bull look. on a surfboard you know we we take a look at the market every day we take a look at what's acting well and what's not acting well and uh you're very familiar now with being below the black line is an unhealthy market. That black line is the 200-day moving average. But uh, the end of March, we got back above it. Uh, and if you're a bull and you're sitting in uh, near the shores of the Atlantic Ocean and you're uh, on your surfboard and you're paddling and you stood up, uh, you would have been riding the wave uh, and, and not quite reach the shore yet. Maybe on a short-term basis, you know, you're losing your balance a little bit, but uh, above the medium-term 50-day moving average, we don't we don't even uh, blink about the fact that whether it's a bull market or a bear market. So, uh, and we treat stocks the same way, that the 50-day moving average is an excellent entry point uh, sometimes for stocks. Sometimes it's a five or 6% pullback from the indexes to get there but when you get there it's a good low risk entry point and if you fail at that level notice how we tested it back here in april uh the beginning of may the end of may 
testing that red line, the 50-day moving average. But uh, every time it, in this case this year, it was a buying opportunity to get on board. So we're pulling back now. Are we going to make it all the way to that red line? We don't know. We don't predict. But we let every position that we have be judged on its own merits. We've got a thesis for everything that we own. But if the price doesn't match that thesis, we're, we're not going to override the technicals. So we buy on the fundamentals and technicals, but we sell only on uh, the technicals. And uh, if a stock's breaking down, it doesn't matter what you think about it. Like, here's a good example. Fortinet was one of the preeminent cybersecurity companies uh, riding a nice uptrend from its last earnings report. And, and this is kind of amazing how just in a three-month period, the perception of what a company is doing can change so drastically. Uh, on their last earnings report, uh, a, a, a big beat and a raise, and the stock went from 60 up to 80, so a 33% move. Today, they're down 23%. Three months later, apparently their business fell apart, or what they're uh, looking at in the next quarter is not as bright as they thought it was going to be. You can see the numbers here, 2023, they're going to have 27% uh, earnings growth. Next year, that's dropping to 2%. We don't want to invest in stocks, especially if they have a 51 PE that are that's showing uh, a decrease in its earnings. So uh, overnight Fortinet uh, went from one of the leading security stocks to a get the heck out of the way stock. Uh, and look at the volume. This is not uh, your uncle or your next door neighbor selling their shares. 704% above average volume. This is institutions saying, yeah, get me out of Fortinet. And um, and note, note where it broke below, Zach, that magical black line. Uh, this is an avoid, absolutely. Mm. So that's just an example of what you can have from one earnings report to another. And uh, hey, if you can find a bull on a surfboard, I would go for it. <laughs> yeah, I get the, I get the graphic. Actually, I'll bet you can find it. a surfboard and I'll bet you can find a bull and uh that's you that's can what take I it from there right <laughs> i think i might have to put that together yeah i don't know if anybody's got all right pulls on surfboards all right that's what we're gonna see folks Perfect. all right so if you like what you heard tell your friend tell your neighbor send them to revereasset.com and we'll see you next week on your money because it's not how much you make in the market it's how much of that you can keep
Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.